0: no matter what form of assisted reproductive technology you're going through, the most important thing is that you trust your doc.
1: Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Shannon Clark. She is a double board certified OBGYN, a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Dr. Clark has taken a very special interest in pregnancy over the age of 35, which like me, she was nearing 40 when she started to think about having her own children. We have a super interesting discussion about our own personal experiences and what it really takes to have what is considered an advanced high-risk pregnancy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shannon Clark. Dr. Shannon Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Shannon, you know, I feel like it's necessary to just open up here. All of us are watching the news and seeing what's going on in the in the Ukraine. And mm-hmm. yesterday, we heard that The Russians had bombed a maternity hospital Mm -hmm. and I actually saw you on social media talking about it. You know, having given birth myself and knowing how vulnerable you are at that time, we rely on people like you to take us through that. What must have that been like in the Ukraine for Mm -hmm. all of those women who had either just given birth or were giving birth at the time? I just can't Mm -hmm. imagine.
0: I mean, I can't imagine. I've never been through anything like that. Something similar would be what happened in Beirut when their explosions happened. It wasn't due to war, but you know, a lot of hospitals and including colleagues of mine who were taking care of pregnant individuals, it, it, same but different. I mean, they had a, a lot of tragedy when that happened. And obviously, this is a different situation with it being a war. And when I woke up yesterday morning, because I, I have to get up at 4.30 when I'm covering labor and delivery. And when I woke up, I always just really check, check my phone really quickly. And my Mm -hmm. husband had texted me at three o'clock that morning saying, sending me the link to what happened. And I was just like, I I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say. I, first of all, I could not imagine. Second of all, it's awful that that would happen. And you know, Mm -hmm. you're right. I went to work and I took care of dozens of patients, pregnant, laboring, coming through triage, antepartum, postpartum. And, you know, although I'm very busy and I have a lot of complications and some very sick patients, that is something that I don't have to worry about and mm. hopefully we'll never and likely we'll never have to worry about. And I just cannot mm. imagine either being a patient because I've been in a high-risk pregnancy and I was hospitalized mm-hmm. for a couple of months. I couldn't imagine being a patient in that situation nor or having babies in the NICU and having to see mm. them try to be evacuated. My twins are in the NICU or, you know, being a mm. physician and trying to take care of your patients and being mm. in that situation. So it's, it's, it's a tragedy.
1: Mm. Well, you are practicing gynecologist. This is what you do every single Mm -hmm. day of your life. But you've also started this very interesting organization, Babies After 35. And when I got to hear about you, I was so excited to get you on the show because as you know, I I got pregnant at 42 with my Mm. baby, my baby girl. And that was for me a choice. I think that as we evolve as women, as, as potential mothers, a lot of us are really focusing on their careers first and having babies later in life. And I have to say that up until I was about 39, I I really didn't give it another thought. And then suddenly at 40, Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I got to do this. I got to do this now. And of course, you know, it's not as easy uh, as when Mm -hmm. you're in your twenties to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and, and suddenly Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, it's time. So what inspired you to create Babies After 35? Was it something Mm -hmm. for you that was personal or was it with the changing times?
0: So a little bit of both. But first, I just want to clarify, you know, I, I am an OBGYN. That's obstetrician gynecologist. I don't do a whole lot of gynecology anymore because now I do all high-risk obstetrics. So I, I specialized mm-hmm. in maternal fetal medicine. So I kind of gave up that part. If it's anything gynecologic related to pregnancy, I can do it. <laughs> but if mm-hmm. you're gynecologist, thankfully, I don't have to do that anymore. But as far as why... I started music at 35 was because of my own journey. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I was training and and single, and yes, I had relationships, but nothing that stuck. And but I was focused on my training. I, if I wasn't training, I was working and studying for an exam. And I had gotten to the point in my life where where I was like, you know, I'm 38. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, and I'll be okay. Well, then I met my now husband about a month after I turned 38, and he had actually just turned 38 as well. So. Things quickly changed. You know, I met my person and my perspective mm-hmm. and my wants changed. And we both were had never been married, no children, and we were like, we're gonna do this, and yes, we want a family. So we got married at 39, started trying immediately after. That ended in a mis- miscarriage. I was then diagnosed with melanoma. Yes, it's melanoma. Melanoma is serious no matter what, but it wasn't advanced, and I had to have mm-hmm. a surgery and recover from that. And then I freaked out because now I was 40 and a half and yes I'm formally trained in obstetrics and gynecology and I know a lot about fertility but I just didn't think it really applied to me because I was healthy and, 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 and in my mind I was still young but then when I had that first miscarriage and then the melanoma I like time slipping away we went straight to see my friend who is an REI reproductive endocrinology and a fertility specialist he and I told him I said talk to me like you would talk to my husband my husband's not medical tell mm-hmm. us the facts about Pregnancy and conception after 40. And my Mm -hmm. husband about fell out on the floor. (laughs) So we went straight for IVF. And in going Mm -hmm. through IVF, and I went through five cycles that were unsuccessful. As I was going through this, I was like, you know, if I'm going through all of this and I'm still learning things and I wasn't prepared for it, even as a trained OBGYN, how do other people feel who don't have that training and that background? Mm -hmm. So that Mm -hmm. kind of inspired me to start babies after 30, at five, to educate on, my primary goal was to educate on fertility and problems with fertility. As we age, so that people could be aware and be prepared. And then, you know, that Mm. blossomed into being pregnant, the the potential complications with pregnancy after age 35 and after age 40. So that's kind of how babies after 35 was born.
1: Well, we are very, very lucky to have you. I wish I'd known you when I was 42 (laughs) and getting pregnant. And I also went through IVF and. Wow, is it a journey? I was so lucky. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry you had to go through so many cycles. I actually got pregnant just from one when I was mm-hmm. 43. And I think there's a lot of women out there listening to this thinking, you know, who have like me, perhaps put it off or haven't found the one, mm-hmm. or have decided to go it alone. And mm-hmm. so many people get in touch with me, knowing my journey, saying they're going to do this. So let's mm-hmm. just talk about IVF for a second. First of all, can you just explain what IVF? is and how it works. Yeah. So the
0: traditional way IVF is done is you have an egg producing individual and a sperm producing individual. The eggs are retrieved from either partner or either person because they don't have to be a couple. It could be sperm donor or, you know, egg donor if if that's needed. Mm -hmm. Um, But the eggs and the sperm are joined outside of the body and then fertilized over time. But every lab's a little bit different that they, you know, they assess the embryos as they develop every day to determine what they're doing. Some of them don't progress, some do, some look good, some don't look good. And then once you get the embryos that make it to a certain point, those embryos are then transferred back into the uterus, typically of the person who donated the eggs. Now there's Mm -hmm. multiple variations, but that's your traditional way. And then you know, because this is being done non-spontaneously, a lot of injections are involved, testing is involved, timings involved. The cycle for producing the eggs that are going to be retrieved is done such that they want to get as many eggs in that retrieval as possible. So you're getting a lot of injections and, and medications to help that happen, to recruit as many follicles to produce eggs as possible for that egg retrieval. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the basis of IVF. But again, there are so many variations of that now that can be done. I I use donor egg myself, so that was cons- that's considered third-party reproduction, but that's really the basics. You get the eggs and the sperm outside of the body, they're joined, and that, then that embryo is placed in, back into the uterus of an individual, and uh, then we see if uh, pregnancy develops. Now, once that embryo is placed back into the uterus of the individual, that individual will still need hormonal replacement because, again, this was not a spontaneously conceived pregnancy. So the corpus luteum, which is what's responsible that develops on the ovary for producing hormones to sustain a pregnancy, is not there. So they have to give the pregnant individual the hormones exogenously, meaning outside of the body, until the placenta takes over and is able to produce those hormones.
1: Gosh, so many questions. Now, Mm -hmm. you didn't use your own egg. You decided, Mm -hmm. I presume, because you were struggling with your own Mm -hmm. fertility, that you used a donut egg. How does one go about finding a donut egg? Is it a little bit like a sperm bank where you can go and choose the person? <laughs> no, it's not quite
0: like a sperm bank. you know s- sperm banks you know sperm producing individuals can produce sperm a lot more frequently than we produce eggs. and mm-hmm. sperm producing individuals are not born with all the sperm they will ever produce they make it for the rest pretty much the rest of their lives up until you know they reach a certain age. With egg-producing individuals, they're born with all the eggs they ever have. And for me, I did five cycles of IVF. On my third cycle, I got one genetically normal embryo because all the embryos we got, um, we ended up getting 10, 16 embryos to test out of the five cycles. And out of the 16 embryos, only one was chromosomally normal. Mm. And that's from PGT, Mm. our pre-implantation genetic testing, which is obviously going to be recommended in someone my age that was going through IVF with their own eggs, so but the the transfer of that one chromosomally normal embryo did not take. So that's when you know we did two more cycles after that. Those that didn't get any chromosomally normal embryos, so we decided to use an egg donor. The process of using an egg donor has even changed so much from when I did it 6 years ago. There weren't as many egg banks like you can have an egg donor registry where you have profiles of individuals who are there to be picked and then they go through the cycle and all those eggs are dedicated to the individual that they're going to. For example, I did a d- dedicated donor egg cycle so the individual I picked went through got her eggs retrieved and all of those eggs went to me nowadays you can get eggs that are already frozen and those eggs can be split up and you can buy the eggs that way it's not quite as expensive because it's not considered a, a dedicated uh, donor egg cycle and there's even uh, embryo banks now where there are embryos that can be accessed so a lot has evolved even over the 6 years that since I've done it myself but wow. that's basically you 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 look yeah you look at the registry you kind of it's kind of like a selection you have a filter where you put Their hair color, eye color, height, Mm. you know, education level, all kinds of different things, ethnicity, things that you can to narrow down candidates Mm -hmm. to pick from. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's quite a process.
1: Are you able to meet the donor before you accept her eggs? So most
0: egg donors, it's all anonymous, but I did Mm -hmm. meet mine because I requested to Mm -hmm. and she was Mm -hmm. okay with that. But a majority Mm -hmm. are anonymous unless an individual has mm-hmm. a family member or a known friend or something somebody that they know that has agreed to donate their eggs to um, an individual that can be done it's not as common as doing egg donor the, anonymously but you know regardless of how you get the the eggs if you're doing egg donor there still needs to be legal things that have to be considered and we always recommend, and fertility centers would recommend that you still go through all the paperwork that you would, even if you didn't know that person. So it's still very mm. important to consider.
1: It sounds like an enormous process, and mm-hmm. uh, it sounds also very expensive. Mm-hmm. Does insurance mostly cover this? And no, <laughs> oh, it doesn't. Okay, and what would the average person? Have to really pay for something like this? Is it in the hundreds of thousands or so? What's your experience?
0: Uh, I'll take it that there's some insurance companies that will pay for certain parts of IVF or a number of cycles. That is getting better. Um, my insurance didn't cover anything. And for if you're talking about just if you're going straight to egg donor, uh, it could be anywhere probably. Depending on what all is needed, can you, you know? with the baseline, I think it's going to be about thirty thousand just for that cycle. That's just including, uh, you know, I did five cycles on my own before that. I mean, we're talking about the financial aspect of it. And I want to make sure we. I add this. Mm-hmm. IVF and forms of assisted reproductive technology are not available to everyone and are not available to many people who need it um, because it is cost prohibitive for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can get grants. You can get some kind of financing uh, options, but that's still not available to everyone. And I recognize that I get a lot of criticism sometimes, you know, for being privileged. Mm -hmm. Did I have the money to do this? Yes. And I'm very thankful for that. But I want it to be known that I, everything that I had, I worked for. I grew up in a very disadvantaged uh, environment and was able to turn that for me and how I was able to proceed in life. So I fully acknowledge that I did have the funds to do this. And Mm -hmm. yes, I was able to go to great lengths that a lot of people can't go to. But again, that was my choice. So I I do hope that eventually things change to where forms of assisted reproductive technology are not as cost prohibitive to individuals Mm -hmm. who need it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it still is. And um, it's starting to change a little bit, but it's really going to be Mm -hmm. available for those who can afford it.
1: Well, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself, and I hope that others are not too hard on you because you're certainly giving back now with your experience Mm -hmm. and the way you're educating people of both the risks and also the opportunities of getting pregnant later in life. Mm -hmm. I would actually like to acknowledge that my IVF was covered by insurance. I only went through one cycle, as as I mentioned, but it was fully covered. But I do Mm -hmm. remember looking at the insurance details and the whole thing cost about Mm -hmm. um, Mm $100,000, you know, including everything.
0: Well, I will say one cycle... If you're paying out of pocket, you know is uh, if you're if you're not using donor egg is not going to be a hundred thousand uh, dollars. It could mm-hmm. be just because of the insurance. But that I don't want to scare anybody that's paying out of pocket. The average mm-hmm. cycle for someone who is doing uh, their egg, their own eggs, their partner sperm, and for, for one cycle with the meds, and they don't need a bunch of uh, meds. Now, keep in mind, as the older you get using IVF, the more meds you need yeah. to stimulate your ovaries to produce more mm-hmm. eggs. The younger you are. The less medications you need, but mm-hmm. there's quotes anywhere between fifteen to twenty five thousand on average mm-hmm. for one round mm-hmm. of IVF, uh, depending on. Mm. Uh, a lot of times, the medications are what's so expensive.
1: I think that was probably also including the fact I had to have a C-section. Yeah, so I had to. Have, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. We're talking. If, if we're just talking about the cycle itself, it's not. It's not a hundred thousand dollars. I don't want people to freak out, even though $15 yeah. to 25,000 is still a lot. Um, Still a lot like of that money. Talking about yep. just, yeah, just the process itself. That's typically the, the, the cost.
1: Now, let's talk for a second about what you physically have to go through when mm-hmm. you go to an IVF doctor. Now, I, I remember going in, having a consultation and just being baffled by the science of it all. And then it started the injections, mm-hmm. the blood work. I felt like every day I was at the clinic. Can you walk us through mm-hmm. what a typical... IVF session or a, an experience takes.
0: And well, I can talk to you about it in g- in generality and you know general terms because I am not a fertility specialist, but I mm-hmm. I know enough to give some information. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, when you're going in to see a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, uh, someone who is having trouble conceiving, the first thing they're going to do is do a detailed history, physical workup of why you might not, may not be able to conceive. That might in- require mm-hmm. blood work, taking a look inside the uterus to see if mm-hmm. there's anything inside the uterine cavity or any deformities, making sure the tubes are open, making sure you're ovulating to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. one of the important things is what are your menstrual cycles like? Having a regular monthly menstrual cycle is a good indicator that you're ovulating. So if you're not having that, that has to be assessed. So they have to mm-hmm. do a lot of front end stuff to make sure that, you know, they're not not missing anything. Because one common misconception is that if I go to see an REI doc, they're just going to stamp ID off on my forehead and put me in line. And that is simply not true. Fertility specialists, sometimes it takes just talking to the individual and they may do the right blood work and find out that you have a thyroid disorder. I'm just giving examples. Or they might look inside the uterine cavity and see that you have a polyp or you have a uterine Mm -hmm. septum or you have a Mm -hmm. uterine anomaly or they might find that Mm -hmm. your tubes are blocked. And a lot Mm -hmm. of times that can be addressed without idea. Mm -hmm. So going to see a fertility specialist Please, if anybody is watching this, does not mean they're going to just say you need IVF. Are there docs that do that? I'm sure there are. But by and large, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. They want you mm-hmm. to get pregnant in the most reasonable way possible, even if that means avoiding IVF or any other form of assisted reproductive technology. But, you know, mm-hmm. say you, for whatever reason, you are in needing IVF. You know, scheduling and timing is important because you have to take injections, they follow your hormone levels to adjust those medications that you're taking. And then the egg retrieval, once you get to a point, you're going to get a lot of ultrasounds of your ovaries to see what the follicles on the ovaries and each one of those follicles hopefully has an egg, what the follicles are doing over time to determine the best time to go in and retrieve the eggs from any of those follicles. And, you know, it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's daily visits or every other daily visits. Things can change. You can't be a stickler for a schedule because that's usually not what's going to happen. Your retrieval day may not be on where you planned. And if that's the case, that's the case. Sometimes your body, your body is kind of the, the driver of what's going on, and so you have yeah. to kind of let go of that a little bit when you're going through this process. On the other end, your partner or your whoever's contributing the sperm, whether it's a sperm bank, is going. You know, you're going to have access to that, and then that will be ready for when your egg retrieval occurs, so that they can fertilize those eggs uh, to see mm. if they grow into embryos. So it's time mm-hmm. consuming. It's stressful. It's unpredictable yeah. in a lot of a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I, I think no matter what form of assisted reproductive technology you're going through, the most important thing is that you trust your doc Yeah. and you, you are going to do what your doc recommends. I see so many times where even though they're going through this process, the individual will go to these forums or these mom blogs or these fertility blogs. Well, what did you do? And, and are trying to see if their doc's doing the right thing. And I, I don't, that shouldn't be happening. That means you don't trust your doc. And if you go mm-hmm. into that, not mm-hmm. trusting your doc, it's not going to be a good experience for you, nor a good cycle. So you have to trust your doc and let them do their job. They're the experts. So it's very yeah. important that you have that good relationship with whoever is, uh, you know, running or uh, managing your IVF cycle.
1: I seem to remember that the process took, my whole process took about two months. I think I started mm-hmm. in January and by March I was pregnant. Is that, does that sound mm-hmm. about Right.
0: I mean, it's going to vary. It's, it depends on what needs to be done beforehand, I, you know, whether or not you need to have anything resected. If they find like a, a small uterine septum or something like that in your uterine cavity, then your uterus has a time to heal. So I, I don't ever really get, you know, when people ask me, again, I'm not a fertility specialist, but, you mm-hmm. know, you can't really predict how long it's going to take. I don't want people to think mm-hmm. it's going to take a month from start to finish. You know, it mm-hmm. might take more than that. Again, that's where it comes in that you have to be patient and understand mm-hmm. that it's Uh, Not always going to happen in a very timely fashion, depending on what needs to be done. Um, So Mm -hmm. for some of my cycles, it was two months. And for some of my cycles, it wasn't. You know, Mm -hmm. every cycle was a little bit different for the five that I went through. Mm -hmm.
1: So let's talk about now your actual job. You are Mm -hmm. a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Tell us what that Mm -hmm. means exactly.
0: Yes. So I did medical school, then four years of an OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology residency, I then decided to subspecialize. So I did three additional years in maternal fetal medicine, which is also known as perinatology or high-risk obstetrics. And that's where mm. I uh, all of my patients are pregnant and have a complication, whether it be a complication maternally or fetally or a combination of the two, surgical complications, anything like that. Those are my patients. Mm. So yeah, all my patients are pregnant and usually having some form of a, a complication.
1: What makes a pregnancy high-risk?
0: It can be anything. There could be medical diseases with the pregnant individual, diabetes, hypertension, lupus, congenital heart disease, patient, anything that's medical that's going to change the course or the management of the pregnancy because when you're pregnant, you go under a lot of physiological changes. And if you have underlying Mm -hmm. medical diseases or medical disorders, the physiological changes of the pregnancy can make those disorders or conditions harder to manage Mm -hmm. and can affect the outcome of the pregnancy. So anything like that, you know, any kind of genetic abnormality the individual might have, and then when you go to pregnancy complications, I don't even know where to begin with that. That can be because of a placental issue, fetal issue mm-hmm. with a you know congenital defect or growth issues, you know, multiple gestations, anything. Someone with a history of preterm birth, a short cervix, the list goes on and on. So there, you know, wow. advanced maternal age, mm-hmm. you know, there's all kinds of things that we deal with cancer in pregnancy that's newly diagnosed or mm, pregnancy mm-hmm. after bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery i mean anything that could potentially impact the progress of the pregnancy or management of the pregnancy could be considered a high risk condition
1: yeah yeah and if cancer is diagnosed during your pregnancy how do you manage that
0: it depends on what it is you know i think mm. overall it it depends on the type of cancer and the big question we have to ask is treatment needed now? If the answer is yes, what treatment can we give? And if we don't give a certain treatment that's recommended, is that going to change the prognosis for the pregnant individual? In which case we would need to deliver them early so they can get the proper treatment. So it all depends on when it was diagnosed in the, in the gestation or in the pregnancy. There's so many factors at play, but ultimately, you know, you want to do the best thing, get the patient as far along in the pregnancy as possible before delivering while also treating, given the patient the treatment that they need. You know, it's a multidisciplinary effort depending on what type of cancer it is.
1: This is a little bit of an oddball question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Say a woman, and again, I know this is about fertility, but you are Mm -hmm. such a wealth of information. Mm -hmm. Say a woman is, and you also talk about babies after 50, which Mm -hmm. you don't hear a lot of about, Mm -hmm. unless you're Janet Jackson, right? Who had her Mm -hmm. baby at Mm -hmm. 51. Say a woman has not had a period for a year. And she's Mm -hmm. in full-blown now. She's gone through perimenopause. She's in menopause. Mm -hmm. If she was to get a donor egg, can she carry and birth the baby? Yes, as long as the uterus is, she's got a uterus, yes. Okay, all right. So that wasn't a crazy Mm -hmm. question.
0: So, you know, but there are some limitations And, and those and fertility centers and some recommendations that the American Society of Reproductive Medicine have put through And an otherwise completely healthy, 50-ish year old. I think the cutoff for doing IVF in those individuals is 55, depending on what their health status is. Now, if they're 50 and they have heart disease, diabetes, a bunch of medical comorbidities, they're likely not going to be a good candidate for IVF Mm -hmm. because you have to consider what the pregnancy might do physiologically to that individual that can impact them even after they deliver. So they're, you know, someone deciding to go through IVF postmenopausally age 50 plus, there are a lot of things to consider. The reproductive mm-hmm. endocrinologist has to be involved. Maternal-fetal spe- medicine specialists like myself should be involved for an evaluation of that individual to give a recommendation to say, we think medically speaking it's okay for them to try to attempt to get pregnant versus you know it's not a good idea. The patient needs to be well-informed of yeah. what they're looking at for their health if they're deciding to try IVF after age 50.
1: And the woman, the carrier of the baby has to have IVF to get her uterus ready, even though she's getting a donor egg. How does that work?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you say you have a 50 year old who's gotten the green light from everyone to go through IVF Mm -hmm. unless they froze their eggs. And we're talking about someone who's already been through menopause. Unless they have frozen their eggs many moons ago, Mm -hmm. they're likely going to need an egg donor. So we would need Mm -hmm. to find an egg donor. They have a partner. Or they're wanting to do this on their own. They can do a sperm donor. And again, the egg and the sperm are going to be joined outside of the body. Then that 50-year-old's uterus needs to be primed to accept an embryo because you can't just stick the embryo in. You have to stimulate what would be as far as getting the lining of the uterus prepared to accept an embryo because you need the lining to be a certain thickness to maximize this of implantation. So mm-hmm. that person would need to go through hormonal treatments to get the uterus ready. And all that can be done exogenously, meaning outside the body or what we call in in vitro versus in vivo, which means inside the body. So hence the word in vitro fertilization, because it's done outside the body. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that 50 year old would still need to take certain medications to get the uterus ready to accept that embryo.
1: I had a fibroid when I got pregnant and the doctors were very worried about it. And because I had all this IVF treatment, it grew and it grew and it grew and it grew grew to the size of a cabbage. And Mm -hmm. it, it made my pregnancy hurt you know i had terrible backache and i couldn't understand why and i i now know Mm -hmm. it's because the the baby was pushing against Mm -hmm. the fibroid and then that was pushing against my inner workings how dangerous is it to grow a baby next to a fibroid and Mm -hmm. would you then usually recommend a c-section because it's hard for the baby to get out right Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, so fibroids are really common. Fibroids, Mm -hmm. it depends on their location and their size. Fibroids can be submucosal, which means underneath the endometrial lining. And if there is a fibroid underneath the endometrial lining, depending on the size or how many there are, that can affect implantation, okay? And if you are to get pregnant and the placenta implants over that fibroid, that could cause some placental attachment problems or over the course of the pregnancy, some growth issues because the blood flow is not going to be as ideal to the placenta if it's attached or implanted over that fibroid. So that's something to think about those. Then the next area would be intramural, which means within the uterine wall. Now, that may not affect successfully getting pregnant, but depending on where they are and how big they are, it can affect, you know, and they can get pretty big. It can affect the course of the pregnancy, depending on how big they are and where they're located. It could lead to preterm labor. If they're located in a certain way where, I mean, I've seen fibroids, a fibroid unit is so big that the. The actual pregnancy was growing up underneath the ribs because the that was where the actual yeah. lining of the uterus was. So it all depends on how big they are, where they're located, and you just have to see where the pregnancy ends up over time. I've delivered multiple babies from fibroid uteruses vaginally, and I've had to do C-sections on a lot of fibroid uteruses to deliver the baby. So mm-hmm. it's not a, something that you can predict before pregnancy because it evolves over time. And some patients do just fine and then some don't. It all depends Mm -hmm. on multiple factors. So fibroids are common, especially in individuals as they age. So we're going to see more fibroids in uteruses of 40-plus-year-olds when they're Mm -hmm. trying to to conceive. So that's something to consider. Also, if there's a big fibroid as the uterus grows, what can happen is uh, the blood supply to the middle of the fibroid can be restricted because the blood supply is going to be naturally diverted to the fetus in the pregnancy. And that can cause degeneration or death at the inside of the fibroid, which releases prostaglandins and all these other factors that can cause not only pain, but can cause uterine contractions. So that's something else to consider Mm -hmm. as well. So if you have fibroids, it's important to know where they are and follow them over time. Just don't forget about them, especially if you're Mm -hmm. anticipating getting pregnant in the future. It's important to know exactly where you stand with those fibroids.
1: I asked my doctor to take the fibroid out during Mm -hmm. the C-section and he refused. Why is that?
0: Because you, the uterus uh, gets a greatly increased blood flow during pregnancy. And mm-hmm. if you have a fibroid, a big one especially, and you try to go in and start dissecting that out, you're going to bleed. And you don't want extra bleeding. Unless it's very easy to get to. There's been situations where I actually had to remove a fibroid to get to the fetus. If that's the case, you mm-hmm. do what you got to do. But if it's not yeah. in the way and it's not going to change how, you, you know, it, you can still deliver the fetus safely, i leave the fibroids alone. The last thing you want to do is to get into a bunch of blood loss and potentially end up losing the uterus because of blood loss, trying to take out a bunch of fibroids at the time of a C-section.
1: So I've heard terms used such as a geriatric pregnancy Mm -hmm. and, you know, obviously high-risk pregnancy and all sorts of awful terms to refer to women over the age of 35 having babies. What's with that? (laughs) Where have these Mm -hmm. terms come from? And geriatric? Geriatric? (laughs) Yeah, I know.
0: Yeah. So there's, you know, I think my favorite one is probably advanced maternal age. That's the one that's the most palatable to me. But there's elderly, geriatric, advanced maternal age. Uh, (sighs) Those are the three main ones. Who knows where they came from? They've been around since when I was in medical school. Mm -hmm. And I guess they probably just couldn't think of a good thing to put with the ICD-9 then codes. And that's what we ended up with. So listen, I know it's not flattering. And should we do better? I think maybe we should just get rid of elderly mm-hmm. and geriatric and just stick with advanced maternal age because
1: I think yeah. that one's
0: okay. And, yeah. but it's still there and it's <laughs> not very flattering, but
1: <laughs> no. No. You know, maybe I was thinking about this before our interview. Maybe, you know, we only used to live till our 40s, 45, mm-hmm. you know, as humans back in the day. Mm-hmm. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe that's where it came from. But was considered, it was geriatric back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, coming to a close, I would love to know from you, what is the sort of, I hate to say this because it sounds ageist, but what's the oldest patient that you've had come through your doors who had a baby?
0: So my, you know, my patient population is largely indigent and underserved. A lot of my, you know, my patients, I I think uh, 91% are um, on some form of Medicaid or um, other forms of uh, assistance. So a lot of my patients are not having RBF, but I will say probably the oldest spontaneous conception that I've seen was 52 that I can think of. Not very often, Mm -hmm. but I do see a lot of patients in their early and mid-40s, but again, I have a very high-risk population. So again, I'm not seeing a lot of IVF patients for obvious reasons, um, but Mm -hmm. for spontaneous, yeah, I do see.
1: And so these are women who've naturally gotten pregnant at that age. Yes. Mm -hmm. And in your professional opinion, do you feel that we are just naturally able to have babies now later in life?
0: No, nothing's changed to make it easier to spontaneously conceive. You have to consider the population that I'm seeing. You know, I get a lot yeah. of referrals. And so if they're older, they're probably going to come in to my center. Right. So mm-hmm. um, from mm-hmm. far away and we get patients from hours away. So, no, I don't think anything's changed with an egg producing individual's ability to spontaneously conceive. But a lot's changed with their ability to conceive via assistive reproductive technology.
1: And physically, when do our eggs start dying?
0: Dying sounds so awful.
1: <laughs> I know. But, I couldn't yeah, think that's, of the uh, right uh, way of saying it. And
0: I know. Okay, so <laughs> when does our fertility start to decline? So when you're thinking about fertility declining uh, with age, you're looking at egg quantity, meaning the number of eggs that are available to be fertilized, and egg quality, meaning you might have a lot of eggs to be fertilized, but genetically speaking, they're not going to be normal if they are fertilized because they've been sitting in our ovaries waiting to be fertilized for 40 years. That was Mm -hmm. my problem. I made eggs when I had, you know, I got eggs retrieved, but they just were not genetically normal. So I had egg Mm -hmm. quantity. I did not have egg quality. Mm -hmm. And I was 40 to 42 Mm -hmm. when I was going through IVF. So the process starts anywhere between 35 to 37. At 37, it starts to accelerate. After 40, for sure, it starts to accelerate. And then, you know, most individuals by their, uh, you know, once they're uh, menopausal, obviously you're not going to be producing any eggs but it's important to know a couple things. It's not a definite. Every individual is different as far as the rate at which their fertility starts to decline and when it starts to decline. For some people, it's earlier than that. The other thing to consider is that fertility is not inherited, meaning you don't get it's not inherited. Your egg quality is not inherited and your egg quality is not inherited. Uh, so we cannot, as individuals who are planning on delaying childbearing, say, well, My aunt had a baby, no problem, got on her own at age 45, or my Mm -hmm. mom did, or my sister did. So we cannot consider that kind of a safety net because someone Mm -hmm. in your family was able to, because every individual is different. Just like I said that, it also doesn't mean because someone in your family had a, a declining fertility earlier life that you will. That it might be a good time, a good sign that you should assess your fertility and make sure you know where you stand. Now, when we go through and start mm-hmm. assessing our fertility and looking at ovarian reserve, that's just telling us the measures that we use for ovarian reserve is just telling us what our response to IVF might be as far as how many mm-hmm. follicles could be recruited. It doesn't say anything about egg quality and if those embryos or those eggs are normal. So, you know, again, I just want people to know that it's different for everyone, but it's something that cannot be ignored. It cannot mm-hmm. be ignored mm-hmm. because no matter how mm-hmm. healthy you are, your eggs don't care you're still aging and your eggs are still aging. So even though I was super healthy, I had no medical conditions, no medications I was on. I worked out all the time. I had no eggs that were chromosomally normal. You know, my health did not matter. So it doesn't discriminate Mm -hmm. and we Mm -hmm. cannot assume that. So if Mm -hmm. you're anticipating Mm -hmm. delaying childbearing until later in life, see a fertility specialist just to get some information, to know where you stand, some baseline you know, labs taken, maybe start getting a plan in place. The other thing I want people to understand as well, and, and, and I'm not trying to scare anyone, but I, I hear a lot of people say to me, well, if I don't get pregnant on my own, I'll just do IVF. IVF does not work for everyone. Don't put off childbearing because you think mm-hmm. if, it, if it, you don't you're, you, or you decide are older that you can just do IVF and bam, you'll have a kid. That's not yeah. true for everyone either. So I think yeah. being informed is the best way to go and knowing where you yeah. stand as an individual yeah. is the best way to go.
1: You know, I'm thrilled to have found this, this wonderful company. It's called Meet Juliet, and they make pregnancy tests and they also make ovulation kits. And I would encourage absolutely everybody, and they have wonderful messages supporting you on every single box, because there's nothing worse than going into CVS and, you know, once a month going to buy those pregnancy tests and buy those ovulation kits. And it's just demoralizing. And it's a very emotional time trying to get pregnant, as you know, and we feel shame, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We feel shame when it doesn't work. And we have to Mm -hmm. absolutely stop all of that immediately. Mm -hmm. Shannon, you're a mother, you're a a wife, and you have this incredible career. How do you balance it all? Sometimes I don't.
0: (laughs) I mean, I struggle. I do. It's, It's hard. The only thing I can do is try to get through every day the best that I can. Sometimes things get neglected. Um, because my, my kids need something, or sometimes I have to say to my husband, you know what, can you do this so I can run and do that? I have no magic thing or magic formula to balance everything. You just got to do the best that you can with the time that you have and understand that sometimes you're not going to get it to at all. And if you don't, mm-hmm. that's okay. I'm great at multitasking, but I've had decades to perfect that. And even then, uh, you know, my husband and I were talking about because right, he is not good at multitasking. He's not. And we, uh, I can accomplish more than a shorter time frame than he can, but we're just two different individuals with different experiences. I've had to learn how to multitask. Now, even then I still fail. So I I think I don't want people at all to look at someone on social media or even someone like myself and think they just figured it out. I haven't figured out anything. (laughs) I haven't. And I'll be first to admit that you just do the best you can with the time that you got and remember what's important. At the end of the day, what's important is your health, your family's health. You have children making sure they're taken care of. All the other stuff, if it needs to wait, it's got to wait.
1: I would add happiness to that because Mm -hmm. if you're not happy, health, of course, is your number one, but happiness Mm -hmm. and a life of purpose and fulfillment Mm -hmm. is also so important. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. You are such a wealth of information. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much needed Dignity Kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a Dignity Kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.